You know, the thing that I, I probably love about Adam Creek the most is that it's gospel-centered in everything that we do here. Um, biblically based in everything, all the decisions made here, it doesn't seem like a decision is made here without first going to scriptures and seeing first. Um, the gospel is presented week by week. And I think that's what I love most about Abner Creek because without the gospel, nothing else matters. Um, you know, there was a time, I don't want to bore you with my life story, I would like to share a little bit about myself to you. This time last year, I was about to graduate North Greenville University um, after three and a half years. And I'd been pursuing a track to seminary those three and a half years. But my last semester at North Greenville, I'd pretty much had enough with uh, vocational ministry. I wanted nothing to do with church ministry. It just seemed like nothing but a bunch of arguments within the church. And I, I, was, I was just fed up with it. Um, and so my last semester, after doing a whole degree pursuing seminary, uh, vocational ministry, I said, God, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. I'm going to USC Upstate, and I'm going to get my teaching degree because um, I don't want anything to do with the church. So I graduated December, got married December, went to USC Upstate in January. In the middle of all that, me and my wife, we started attending worship here at Admiral Creek. And I got to tell you, Abner Creek's ministry here was different than any other ministry that I had been accustomed to. Um, you know, the churches that I had been in my past, it, it wasn't like they were they weren't preaching heresy or I mean, they were preaching God's word. But the ministry setting here, the things that were focused on here, the most it just it was something different about it. And so uh, we started attending here in January. I was very content with getting my teaching degree at USC Upstate. The more we were attending here, you know, we just we kept coming back because we love. I mean, the people, I mean, you guys were just overwhelmingly nice as soon as we walked in the door, just overwhelmingly nice to us. Um, you know, we love the music style that Ethan put together each week and the preaching that Scott did and and how the youth was gospel centered with Greg and. You know, I don't, I don't want you to hear me wrong in saying we were looking for a church that entertained us. We weren't. That's not what we were doing. We were looking for a biblically based, biblically sound church. Um, and can I challenge you this morning, if you're a visitor and you're visiting around looking for a church, don't look for one that entertains you. Look for one that is gospel centered, biblically based. Because after all, you know, it's not about us. It's not about what we're comfortable in. Not about what music we like. It's all about God and glorifying him. But at the same time, we we were visiting here and we loved those different aspects about Abner Creek. And I must admit that the, the preaching style that Scott did, does here was quite different than what I was used to. The expositor type, verse by verse, preaching through the Bible, that was something I wasn't accustomed to. However, the more I, the more I was here, the more I tend to worship here, I began to fall in love with the Word of God. And as much as I loved the people here, as much as I loved... The music, and as much as I love the preaching, the Word of God became, it was like it all of a sudden became alive to me again. Um, you know, I realized that so many of the things that I had been focused on at North Greenville the first time was a totally wrong mindset. 
that I had had it all wrong the first time. And so the more we came here, the word of God began to hook me more and more. And I just loved it each week. And I began to study when I was at USC Upstate, just more and more in the Bible. I was still pursuing teaching career, but I began to just study the Bible like I had never done before. And so slowly I realized that maybe I had made a mistake. And so I remember one night I was lying in bed and I asked Collier, I said, would it be crazy if I decided to go to seminary after switching schools again? She was half asleep and just mumbled something. And I was like, well, I'm not going to get to her tonight. And so, but I thought about that night. We discussed it over the weekend. And by the end of the weekend, um, I decided to go to seminary. So that's where I am today. And I'm very thankful for Abner Creek and how God used it, how God used you and Scott, Ethan, just tremendous help to me during that time. Um, and I'm, I'm very proud to be a part of the church that is so gospel-centered. This morning, I'm going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, if you'd like to follow along. This morning, I, I don't want to attempt to boast about the things in my life. I don't want to boast about the things that's happening to Donald, what has happened to Donald. I really want to focus on boasting in the work of Christ, because after all, that is why we're here, to glorify Him. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body, of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we will walk in them. Father God, I pray this morning that you will remove me and speak through me. I pray that we will humbly accept your word and boldly proclaim it as we go out. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul here is writing to the church of Ephesus and possibly other churches in the area. He is very clear in presenting the gospel message, very clear in presenting the process of salvation. He does not sugarcoat his message in any way. He doesn't use elaborate words to impress them. He simply presents the gospel to them. And I can tell you that this message that Paul presents here, messages like this, should remain very active in churches today. It's very important for, remember, for believers to remember what the true gospel is. What is that price of salvation? What is the true gospel that we have hope in now? You know, we're, in, in today's world where people are claiming that, you know, God's love will simply win in the end. That God loves everyone too much to let everyone go to hell. So he'll just save everyone. In the day where people are claiming where all you have to do is really be good in and of yourself. 
God will see that and He'll save you for that. In a day where people claim, you know, you just read the Bible all the way through and you'll, you'll go to heaven. I had a, a co-worker ask me that the other day. She said, you know, I've read the Bible, parts of the Bible, but I've never read it all the way through. Is, is, is that what I have to do? And I said, you know, is that what you have to do for what? And she said, well, you know, to go to heaven. And I said, no, you don't have to go to heaven. You don't have to read the Bible all the way through to be the key to go into heaven. You know, people claiming that Jesus Christ isn't really necessary. You just have your God. I'll have my God here. We don't need a man who came into history. You just worship yours. I'll worship mine. We'll all get there, same place. Churches that are practicing tolerance over speaking the word of God and love to their neighbor, who would rather let their neighbor or their fellow church brother, sister in Christ live in sin without lovingly tell them the truth of God's word, would rather practice tolerance in that area. Churches that promise prosperity to the believer. You just pray for that that bigger house and that faster car and that better promotion, and God's going to give that to you because, after all, you pray and ask for it. And He wants that for you right now. Rarely, it seems, more and more, that you will find a gospel message presented the way that Paul does here in chapter 2. Rarely. You know, what happened to the parts of the gospel that call believers to die to self and take up your cross Realizing the sinfulness of our core, recognizing the need of a Savior, the Savior that only can come in Jesus Christ. Where is that gospel in our churches today? In a, in a, in a gospel that is many times misrepresented and, and just painted wrongly, that type of gospel seems to be falling to the wayside. So it's very important for us to remember what the gospel is. What is it about the gospel that grips the heart of man and draws him to God? Paul offers that reminder to the believers then. And it's a great reminder for us today. In the first part of his letter, what we have of chapter 1, Paul tells the believers of many blessings that they have in Jesus Christ. And in verse 4 and 5, he tells them they were chosen and predestined to be adopted as the sons of God. He tells them they have the blessing of being redeemed by Christ's blood. The blessing of having an inheritance with Christ. Tells them that They have the very seal of the Holy Spirit, which holds that inheritance. And then we get to our text in chapter 2, where he breaks it down a little more, uh, makes it a little bit more personal to them. He first of all reminds the believers there of their past condition. And we see that in verses 1 through 3. He writes, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You know, one one of my favorite movies is The Green Mile. One of the saddest movies, in my opinion, um, and so I don't watch it very much. My wife doesn't like to watch it very much, but it's, it's one of my favorite movies. If you don't know the setting, it's prisoners on death row, and they're just all waiting for their execution date. Where, well, this new prisoner comes in, the big, big guy, and the prison, one of the prison guard gets him out of the van, and he's walking him to a cell, and just the whole time he's getting him out of the van, he's saying, dead man walking. We've got a dead man walking here. Just arrogantly. Do you hear me? We have a dead man walking the whole time as he's leading him to a cell. While the prisoner waits for his execution date. And I can't help to remember each time that I watched that. Of the time when I was a dead man walking. And 
you know, do you remember that before Christ we were all dead men walking? Before Christ we were dead to God? You realize that we have dead men walking all around us every day? See, that concept of being dead is not one we typically like to think about. However, spiritually, everyone in this room this morning was either previously dead or, sadly, maybe some here today still dead to God and spiritually. Think about that overall concept of being dead. One doesn't move, doesn't think, one doesn't react, one doesn't breathe, doesn't possess any quality except for simply being dead. Our spiritual state, that's how it was with us, with God, before we had Christ, before we trusted and repented in Christ. Spiritually, we were dead to God. We were totally tuned out to the ways of God. And, and I want to point out that the fact that we were spiritually dead doesn't mean that I was as evil as I could be. It doesn't mean that neighbor A was as evil as neighbor B in the sense of the things they did. Uh, you know, the severity of our sin wasn't what kept us from a right relationship with God. The very fact that we were sinners kept us from a right relationship with God. You know, the person who sins every second of the day and the person who sins once in his lifetime both stand guilty before God. Both are stand condemned before God because they're guilty with sin, dead to God. Paul reminds us also in Romans that all men, both Jews, Greek, you know, are under the power of sin, and none is righteous, no, not one. He explains later that all have sinned and fallen short in the glory of God. We are spiritually dead to God, and it would remain like that until something happened. However, just simply being dead wasn't the end of our past condition. Paul goes on to tell us, you were dead in your trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince, the Following the prince of the power of the air. We'll see that in verse 2. We were not only dead to God, but we walked in total opposition to God. We had no desire to follow God's will. No desire to follow His commands. What He wanted for our lives. We had no desire to do that. And if we were, if we were physically alive, but spiritually dead to God, we must have been spiritually alive to something else. And Paul tells us there, that we were walking according to the ways of the world, following the prince of the power, the very leadership of Satan. Paul, when he says that we were following the world, he's not talking about a physical world. Paul doesn't mean that we were following the dust of the ground or the, the tree, tree, leaves of the tree. You know, he wasn't talking about the physical, that type of physical. He was talking about the worldly systems, following those type systems that the world gets caught up in. I was reading from John MacArthur, and he, he lays out three worldly systems that the world seems to run by. Uh, he says one is humanism. Humanism where, he's, where you know man is king. Man is the ultimate being. Man says, I get to make my own standards for my life. I'll decide what I want to do for my life. The world is run, run by materialism, and I think it's obvious that Materialism, just getting more and more. What can I get more? How can I get bigger things, better things? It just seems to just totally captivate us. What, what our uh, supreme goal is in life seems to be materialistic many times. And the third one that the world seems to run by is illicit sex. In a, in a society where sexual perversion is rampant, anywhere from you know, lust to 
homosexuality, the pornography in our TV, in our commercials, it's just laced with sexual perversion. And if you look back through history, those three systems, they haven't changed. Yes, the technology has increased and the method that those are seen through, they've changed. But the core of man has has always wanted to set his own standards. The core of man has always been materialistic and sexually perverted. Haven't changed. But, you know, the irony in that is, you know, take humanism, for example, where he says that man is king. I get to make my own standards. The irony is the person thinks that he's making his own standards, but he's really not. Paul tells us in the verse here that, you know, we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the air, the power, Satan himself. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul calls Satan the god of this world. We followed the god of this world at one point. And just as many of us didn't realize it then, many people don't today realize it. People today, most of the time, don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to follow Satan's leadership today. They don't do that. Most of the, you know, the person who is without Christ wakes up and says, you know, I'm going to do today what I think is best, what I think is best for my family, what I think is best for me. All the time just thinking that he's just doing what he wants, what he thinks is best, what really he's following the prince of the air that Paul's talking about there. In verse 3, Paul continues to remind believers of the past condition. And remember, I want you to remember this morning that while this text has great application to non-believers, Paul is writing to believers here. So it's very important not to just check out because this is a salvation message you know, you've been saved, got baptized, you know, you check that card off and, you know, you know what he's talking about. He's writing to believers, so it's very important for many believers in the room today not to check out on that. He reminds believers that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The phrase that really jumps out to me in that, it's children of wrath. I can't, I can't really con- uh, grasp that concept of you know receiving God's wrath fully. I can think back to when Jesus was praying before he was betrayed by Judas, and, and Scripture says that his soul was sorrowful even to death. I can't imagine that state. Um, I'm very thankful for Christ uh, because for taking that wrath. But I can, you know. If you imagine the justice of God and the attributes of God, how God is perfect, against sin, hates sin, just totally against it. And then you think about the human who was born dead in their trespasses and sin, who loves sin, the total opposite of God. Think about those two extremes. I think God is totally justified in his wrath. He's the creator and we're not. I think he's totally justified. I can remember as a kid thinking about wrath, you know, what this concept of wrath meant. Um, And I remember as a kid thinking the best way that I can describe wrath is um, when, I guess, when my daddy whoops me. As a kid, I I would think that. And, you know, I don't know about many of you, but many times my family's together, we we get on the topic of spanking. And my sisters would tell you today that it rarely happened to me. But the times that it did, I can tell you it went something like this. I would do something wrong. My dad would say, son, you go to your room and you wait for me to get there. 
That's an awful word. You're talking about your stomach going to your throat. You know, so, you know, I'd go to my room and we lived in a small house. And so you could hear his footsteps everywhere we went in the house. And so I'd be waiting in my room and he'd he'd leave wherever he was, maybe the kitchen. And he'd walk through the living room and I'd hear him. I'd I'd hear him go to his bedroom. I'd hear the closet door open. I'd hear the sound of a belt coming down. Um, I remember him coming back through the living room and I'd. I'd see my, uh, my doorknob turn. Ah, it was just, a t- I mean, I'd get, I'd start sweating just thinking about it. Uh, and it only happened a few times, but, I mean, that was enough. So, and, and he would come in and he would presume to say, you know, what I'd done wrong, why I was wrong. Tell me how many licks I was going to get. Now, if you're against spanking this morning, don't judge me. I'm, that's just the way it was, okay? The, so he would tell me that. And for a child, that is the ultimate wrath. Your dad coming down on you. That is ultimate wrath. When Paul's talking about the very wrath of God here, you know, I can't wrap my mind around that. Um, but, I, you know, when he says that, I picture a total eternity separated from the God who created you, separated from God who loves you. The, the full anger of God coming down on sin. And I see, you know, that while His wrath was coming towards us, the love of Christ stepped in and took that wrath. I think about um, these first three verses and when Paul's reminding us of our past condition. Our discussion this morning has been rather depressing so far. And I have to admit, during this week, it was a little nerve-wracking because I was soon reminded of my past condition and my dead state before I had Christ and the dead state I was before God and that wrath coming towards me. And if you're a believer this morning, you know the glorious news that is about to follow. And if you're an unbeliever this morning, I have to be honest and tell you that the past condition that I just described, if you're an unbeliever, it's not past. It's a very present condition that is for you now. Even now, without Christ, you are dead in your seat there, dead in your trespasses and sins, and totally tuned to the way, out to the ways of God. But be encouraged, though. Paul offers some liberating news in verse 4. You know, after reminding believers that they were dead in their trespasses and sin, that they were totally tuned to the ways of God, that they were children of wrath, after all that, there's a sense of panic. You know, what are we going to do? We're all just doomed by God. And after he says all that... He writes in verse 4, two of the most beautiful words in Scripture, in my opinion. He says, but God. But God. After Paul reminds them of their past condition, he reminds the believers of God's radical rescue of sinners. Verse 4 through 7. You know, you you can usually hear a but statement coming a mile away in a conversation. You know, maybe, this is how it's happened to me before. Maybe you write in a paper for one of your professors. He says, Donald, come into my office. We need, to, we need to talk about your essay a second. I say, okay. Walk in there. Donald, you know, you made some really good points. Um, your sentences were, you know, formed well. But, and you can hear it coming every time, but your formatting just stinks. You know, and, or maybe, you know, after, after you preach or after you share the gospel or, or whatever it may be, someone says, Pastor, Scott, you know, you made some really good points today, but, 
You can hear it as a speaker or a pastor or whatever. You can hear that butt coming, I'm telling you, from a mile away. Or maybe this one will hit a little more home sometimes. You know, I, I believe the Bible, but I see what the Scripture is saying, but can I tell you that if that statement is ever, I believe the Bible, but, and that but follows that, that's pretty dangerous there. Let's not forget that the Bible is the very Word of God. And for us to say, I believe it, but, we might be getting in some rough waters there. But there, there's several of what I like to call the but statements in the Bible. In many cases, like this one, troubling news is told, and then some great news is told after the but. If you will, listen to some of the, the, the scriptures and the power of but God. In Joseph's story, after he's sold into slavery by his brothers, after he's accused of trying to be a Potiphar's wife and he's in prison, you know, after all that, in Genesis 50, 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Paul writes in Romans 5, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one will dare to even die. But God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is one of my favorites. After Jesus died, and the account's recorded there in Acts chapter 13, says, And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Aren't you glad as a believer it doesn't end there? Aren't you glad as a believer that a but God is going to follow that sentence? Without a but God, Jesus is still in the tomb. The rest of that verse says, But God raised him from the dead. That is glorious news. He's no longer dead, but God raised him. And then we come to our passage this morning. You were dead, but God. Here's an encouraging reminder. We were dead, but God in his sovereignty chose to make us alive. A key point to remember here is in verse 5, that phrase, with Christ. Christ is the one who measured up to the standard we could not measure up. Christ is the one who lived the perfect life that we didn't live. Christ is the one who took the full wrath of God that was coming towards us. Make no mistake about it. God just didn't sweep sin under the rug. He didn't say, I'll just let sin pass. No, Christ took our place. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The very sin that was coming towards us was put on Christ. And the very righteousness that was with Christ was given to us. And now we stand with Christ, righteous before God. That phrase there, with Christ, is very important. You know, I love the phrase of why He chose to make us alive there. says, Paul writes that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You know, Paul says that God is rich in mercy. Many people today are rich in all kinds of stuff. You know, obviously rich in money, rich in resources, 
you're like my wife, rich in beauty, rich in friends. That got me some points there. Uh, Rich in friends, just all kind of stuff. But man, Paul says God is rich in mercy. The very fact that God is rich in mercy to a mankind who is totally against him, born in their trespass and sin, that's just mind-boggling. Sometimes I try to think about how I measure up to this mercy driven by love. And if I can be honest with you, I fail many times. A couple weeks ago, a guy came into work. I work at CVS, um, and I was behind the counter that, that day. A guy came into CVS. Many times I know when people like you or anybody that comes into a drugstore, they have their mind set on what they're going to get. Many times they're sick. People have a lot of stuff on their minds. They're not thinking about saying hey to the guy at CVS. But I can tell you, a lot of times I'll say when somebody comes in the door, hey, sir, how you doing? She keeps on walking, doesn't even notice me. Sometimes, you know, I'll, they, just, they just don't even pay attention. And so I got used to that. I got used to just talking to air, saying, how you doing, and people just ignore me. But, you know, this one day, it wasn't too good of a day for me, and it just got to me. And the guy came into CVS, and I said, hey, how are you? Just, just on by me. And I said, you know what, I'm going to make this dude talk to me. And I said, I walked around the counter, said, how you doing? Can I help you find anything? Just kept on walking. He got his stuff. He came up to the counter. I checked him out. I gave him his bag. I said, thank you. Have a good day. He said, the guy was deaf. You talk about a guy feeling this big? That was me. I was that guy that day. I fell so many times at being rich in mercies. I didn't know that dude's situation. I didn't know what he was going through. I didn't know anybody, what most people didn't come in there going through. And yet I had the audacity to think, how dare that guy not talk to me? You know, Paul says that God is rich in mercy. And he says, you know, he's rich in mercy. God being rich in mercy towards the people that do walk by him every day. Who don't pay attention to his words. That's the God that is rich in mercy. Here I was feeling sorry for myself because a guy wouldn't talk to me at CVS. And I remember a time in my point where God's word was there and I just walked right past it. Thank God he was rich in mercy. Those two passages of Scripture, verses 1 through 3 and 4 through 7 that we just saw, two extreme opposites. We were dead. We're made alive. That's it, right? Let's go home, eat lunch. Not quite. Paul kept going. Verses 8 through 10, after he reminds them of past condition and reminds them of God's radical rescue, Paul reminds believers that salvation belongs to God alone, which brings about good works. Do you know that you can make yourself die? I don't want to insult your intelligence here. That's an obvious statement. You can make yourself die, but you can't make yourself come alive can't do it. A rescue from God is one that we play no part in. We were just the one he rescued. This making alive is a total work of God. Since we were dead, we couldn't just all of a sudden become alive to him just on our own. 
In verse 8 there, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. John 6.44 says that no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God is the one who draws us. We don't just, I'm going to go to God today. He makes us alive. Paul continues that, he says, our salvation is not of any works, so we cannot boast. And I remind you this morning that without Christ, the only thing that we can boast in is how much a pathetic sinner we are standing before him. But with Christ, oh man, with Christ, that's a lot to boast in. I don't boast in my works, I boast in Christ's works. Galatians 6.14, Paul is concluding his letter there. He says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We boast in the work of Jesus. That is the work that we rest in. Rest in those everlasting arms. Our work cannot save us. And we see in, the, in verse 10 there, and this one that we boast in is the one that we were created in. Four good works. Verses 8 through 10 here could have a whole sermon series to themselves. But here's the point. You know, we don't gain our salvation by our good works, but our salvation will ultimately produce those good works. John MacArthur wrote that no good works can produce salvation, but many good works are produced by salvation. We are justified before God by faith. Faith faith that will produce those good works, as we see in that concluding verse, in Christ Jesus that we are to walk in. After he makes us alive in his rich mercy, he has works prepared beforehand for us that we are to walk in. What a great reminder of the gospel that we received. As Ethan comes to lead us in a time of worship and music and a time of reflection. I encourage you to reflect upon that true gospel. Not the one what the the latest preacher is preaching. Not the one that the most popular preacher is preaching. Reflect on the gospel that Paul presents in Scripture. Let's not rely on simple man to give us the gospel. Let's see how it is in the Bible. Sidewalk Prophets has a, a song called, You Love Me Anyway. And while there's some points in that song that could be tweaked a little bit, I think they hit right on the nail in describing a condition that we were before Christ, to Christ. Listen to a few of the lyrics, if you will. I am the thorn in your crown, but you love me anyway. I am the sweat from your brow, but you love me anyway. I am the nail in your wrist, but you love me anyway. I am Judas's kiss, but you love me anyway. See, I'm the man who yelled from the crowd for your blood to be spilled on this earth-shaking ground. Yeah, then I turned away with a smile on my face. With this sin in my heart, I tried to bury your grace. But you loved me anyway. Our past state and God's rich mercy came to us. And he loved us enough to make us alive. As we take time to reflect this morning, let me encourage you to remember how you once stood before God without Christ. 
how he radically rescued you through Christ. And now in response to that, to follow the good works that he has set before you. That is the gospel that causes us to praise God. Causes us to unite in our worship in the God who truly deserves all the praise. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the great news of your son. Father, I pray now that in this room may we reflect upon that great news. Help us to remember our past condition. Rejoice in your rich mercy towards us. Father, I pray that you will speak. Help us to glorify you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.